Hi everyone, my name is Kirk Popman, and welcome back to The Ultimate Dish. Today I'm speaking with Gavin Kaysen, the award-winning chef and founder of Sarnier Hospitality Group in Minneapolis, home of his nationally renowned restaurants and cafes in the Twin Cities. Gavin's suite of acclaimed restaurants includes Spoon and Stable, a 2015 James Beard Award finalist for the best new restaurant, and Demi, a 20-seat gem ranked number three on Rob Report's 10 Best Restaurants in North America. His latest launch, Mara, was named Restaurant of the Year by the Star Tribune and Minnesota Monthly. We also can't forget Soka Cafe and Cook's Bellacore. Adding to his repertoire, Gavin recently debuted his first cookbook, At Home, highlighting several of GK At Home cooking classes. But Gavin's impact extends far beyond the kitchen. He advocates for more professional work environments through the Independent Restaurant Coalition and leads amazing initiatives through foundations like Heart of the House and Fast Break Foundation. With a passion for supporting the next generation of young culinarians, Chef Kaysen also serves as the president of the Mentor BKB Foundation Team USA, where he collaborates with two of his mentors, Daniel Ballou and Thomas Keller. Recipient of two James Beard Awards, Gavin's culinary prowls from Michelin star ventures to roles at Netflix, Iron Chef Reboot, and Food Network appearances is simply awe-inspiring. Join us today as we talk about how Gavin became a nationally recognized chef, his advice for the next generation of culinarians, and so much more. And there he is. Good morning. Morning. How are you? I'm out of breath. I know, right? That's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot. Congratulations right off the bat. Thank you. I'm going to dive into a lot of background stuff first, but can I just ask, I'm a big sports fan, and, and I know you've got kids, the Fast Break Foundation, can we talk about that just for a second? Is yep. that metaphor for, you know, or a sports analogy as well? Yeah, so it's with the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Minnesota Lynx. So they're known as the Minnesota Basketball Association, and that company then owns those two entities. So for the NBA and the WNBA. And so I sit on that board and was invited to be on that board by the president of that company. And so there's about eight or nine of us on that board. You know, we focus on a lot of local initiatives to help, you know, the younger generation, younger athletes, younger kids, you know, in populations that are maybe not as available for them to gather the resources to play the sports. It's been amazing. I mean, this is my second year on that board and I've had a blast to be a part of it. I just love it. I love it. Congratulations there. I don't really have the right words to describe how excited and honored I am to have you on the show. The more research I did beyond what I already knew, you know, from social media, the more I learned, the more excited. And we should probably think about a two-part series because there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Like always, I mean, we're not political. We're not controversial at all. It's really about you. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to dive in before we dive in and talk about you in your whole life, you you live in Minneapolis with your wife and three sons, and I understand that in your spare time you're either you know cooking cooking for your family or you're at sports activities. Mm -hmm. You know, dollar question really is this day and age, how do you balance it all? Yeah, I mean, you know, so Chris Kristen Kish, who's a good friend of mine who you know as well, she was doing an interview and she said they had this question about balance to her. And I really loved her answer. She said, you know, I just don't look at it like balance. I try to figure out what's my harmony. And I thought it was a really exceptional way to sort of describe it because often in our profession, as you know, it's not my work is my life and my life is my work. And so, you know, many years ago, I decided to no longer 
penalize myself by feeling guilty if I had to leave the restaurants a little bit earlier than close or if I left at 6.30 to go watch my son's baseball game or hockey game. I just didn't think that was necessarily fair to not only who I wanted to then become, but also it's also a really poor example of the younger generation, right? Because you're sort of handcuffing yourself to the stove all the time. So it's for me, it's It's less about the balance. It's more about the harmony. It's more about forgiving myself when I need to take those nights away to be with my family and then forgiving myself when I'm not with the, the family to be with the restaurants. Both are equally important to me, but one of them is a transactional operation with a lease and the other one's blood. <laughs> <laughs> no, really well said. My wife is going to listen to this episode and, and kind of hold me to that. Interesting story. You mentioned Kristen Kish. Uh, she was a student at La Cordon Bleu in Chicago while I was the president there. And she was a great student, you know, drama. I rarely met the great students, right? I just, right. I had the tough faces in my office. But right. I'll never forget, she spoke at graduation probably a year after she really started to take off. And I'll never forget it. it you know, it's daunting, you know, two, 3,000 people in front of you and you're in auditorium. Mm-hmm. And she got up there and she said, you know, I've never spoken at graduation before, so I Googled it. And this was 10 years ago, right? So, yeah. and, people, and she had a meeting out of her hands right right off the bat. So That's awesome. Small world for sure. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about, you're incredibly humble, but we've got to talk about becoming a star, right? My listeners know, our listeners know that I like to trace back to the origin of everything and the foundation of what makes you an elite chef, a great person. And so where we tend to start is like, what was your relationship like with food growing up when you were a child? Was it, you know, a big part? You grew up in California. Was it a big part of your family? I was born in LA and then I was raised here in the Midwest. And, you know, it was a big part of my grandparents. It wasn't a big part of my immediate mom and dad. You know, they, neither one of them really took to cooking that much. And I think part of that was also you end up raising, like when you're raising a family, it's sort of an odd experience in the fact that you're sort of trying to raise your kids at the same time as you're trying to raise your career. <laughs> and so something's got to give. And at that point, I think that give was, they, they didn't cook a lot at home. So we would go out to eat a lot or we would do simple meals at home. However, the time in which I really started to fall in love with food was very early on with my grandmother, who was my dad's mom. Her name is Dorothy. She passed away 13 about 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And, you know, I just, I always had this memory of baking cookies with her, making chicken and dumplings with her, doing pot roast on Sundays with her. And it was just so, it was so inspiring to know that it was ingredients. It was your hands and technique and senses that would kind of stop everybody to put them around a table and eat and feel nourished by that experience. And It was a really impactful moment of my life when that resonated with me. And then at the age of 15, my mom said, hey, you got to get out of the house and stop mowing lawns for a living. Not that's not okay, but you know, go figure out something that you can do a job every day. So I went and got a job at a Subway sandwich store. And there was a gentleman named George Sarah who opened up a pasta restaurant, like an Italian, kind of a fast casual sort of sit-in cafe, pasta restaurant next door. And George became a mentor of mine at an early age. And I remember him telling me when I was 16 years old that I had a gift with food and my hands understood how to handle food. My mannerisms understood how to talk to a guest and I understood hospitality. 
listen, as a 16 year old, <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. And I could, I certainly couldn't appreciate it because there was nothing at the time. There wasn't a lot of look to look up to. There was not what we have today, which might in some ways be a little bit too much information, but you know, you couldn't look anything up to say like, well, what does it look like to be a chef on Instagram? What does it look like to be a chef on TV? What does it look like to host a podcast? Like none of it existed. And so it really came down to, do you love to cook and do you love to take care of people? And if the answer to both of those questions is yes, and it's the thing that you love more than anything, maybe go after it. Do you find, and, and, and I'm just kind of comparing it to my own experiences. I, I grew up in a hospitality family as well. My father came over from Europe and he's a master pastry chef by German standards, right? And so I, I'm not in front of the stoves anymore, but I used to find that my cooking had a lot of those influences. I felt like, I mean, people had to pull me aside and, and say, stop putting nutmeg in everything that you cook. Well, yeah. do you think that some of those influences, or at least the memories, still find their way into your restaurants? Yeah, I think especially coming back into the Midwest. I think being elsewhere, I was probably more inspired by the surrounding of where I was. But I think certainly being back home in the Midwest, especially when you feel the weather, it's like today's cold. So it's like when it's cold outside, you just sort of you sort of yearn for that idea of pot roast or chicken and dumplings or like I actually woke up this morning and I was like, I really want to eat chicken and wild rice soup. That's something from my childhood, but like just the way that the, you know, the frost hit the ground and how cold it was, it just sort of was reminiscent of that. So I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of, as cooks and as chefs, we we end up feeling a lot of nostalgia when it comes to to what it is we're making. Yeah. You know, I sent to my team, I sent two articles that I found the other morning. One was more focused on Norway and the other one was kind of focused on Sweden. And it was just kind of like how to survive the mm-hmm. long winters. And it was the perspective was amazing because it wasn't about how tough those periods of the year are, but rather what opportunities they present. You know, the coziness, the warm food, the big blankets. And they went on to say that saying hello to people during the cold winter months was really and I've been to Minneapolis. I've been, you know, there when it's cold. I've been there when it's hot. So. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, when it starts to hit winter, it's like we all joke about it, but it's totally true. You don't really see your neighbors until spring. Yeah. Yeah. Do they still have those um, kind of walkways to, I mean, I used to think that was brilliant. You park once and you could go anywhere you want in the city without having to go outside. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant in that respect. It's not brilliant in the idea that it removes all the street presence away from retail. Yeah, 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 I imagine. Let's go back to George a little bit. You know, I was going to ask that question. Was there that one cook or chef or mentor, you know, outside of grandma? But it was George, I think I read, that that influenced you to consider, you know, going to culinary school. And then you ended up going to Necky. Can you, and again, a lot of our listeners are aspiring cooks, right? And you students, alumni, that sort of thing. Can you speak a little bit about your experience? Did you feel like you were at home at culinary school? Yeah, very much. You know, I knew, you know, George. So when I started to work for him, I was 16. And I, you know, he kind of put me on this path of less about let me teach you all the fundamentals, knowing that I was going to go to culinary school and that would effectively teach me what I needed to know. And so I think his purpose was, let me not, I don't want to teach you 
my version of it because I'd rather get you have you get a foundation. And when I went to culinary school, I remember the first nights that I was there and I was given a homework to read X amount of chapters of the book on cooking. <laughs> right. And I just remember that it was the only time that I was actually excited to read something. And it's not that I just read the chapters that they gave me. I stayed up the whole night and read the entire book. Yeah. And you just go through it and you just learn about, you know, this and that and all these other different things. And it's just really, it was really an inspiring time of my life because I had made the decision that I wanted to become a cook and I wanted to become a chef. And when, and I was given the support by my parents by George, so friends and family to say, we believe in you too. And that was, a, that's a really, that's a really important part and an often overlooked part of any story is that who was, who were the support people and what was the support system behind you to get you there? You know, anybody that has created any sort of success, there's a village behind those people. A really, really dear friend of mine who I grew up with here in Minnesota, my brother played hockey with him when they were kids. And he was always the best player on the ice by far. And he became a professional hockey player and he went pro and it was fun to watch his career. And I was listening to a speech that he gave the other day. And he said, you know, it takes a village to raise a person. It takes an entire community to raise an NHL athlete. And I kind of thought the same way with like what it is we do. You know, it takes a village to raise somebody, but it takes a community to raise, you know, somebody who's successful really is what he was saying. And I thought that was really relevant to to anybody that's created success in their life. There's a group of people around you that say, we believe in you. Go get it. I love it. Yeah, that's such good advice. We're going to turn that into TikTok, by the way. Yeah, I love it. You know, one of the cool things about going to culinary school is sort of the the carrot towards the end, right? The externship, where you're going to land, where you're going to do that. And again, I read that you had an externship in, in Napa, Domitian Don. I'd love your take on was that what you were going to do because of your California roots? What pulled you and what got you excited about selecting that sort of an externship, which I imagine had a lot to do with wine as well, right? Yeah. So there, there was a, a chef named David Hale and David Miles, who were both at Necky at the time. And David Hale was the kind of the top boss. And there was a pe- literally a piece of paper where you could go for your externship. And on the front piece of paper was for all first year students, which is what I was. And the back of the paper was for all second year students. So of course I looked at the back of the paper first and I said, well, this is interesting. I want to go to Domaine Chandon because I really wanted to be a part of something that I just, I sort of wanted to see terroir. I wanted to be a part of nature. I wanted to see, you know, coming from the middle of the country, there's a little bit, at that time there was less to see and less to be exposed to. And so I purposely threw myself in the deep end with that in mind. And so the only way I could get in was if David Hale would endorse me. And he just happened to know Robert Curry, who was the chef at the time at Domaine Chandon. So he made a call to Robert and Robert accepted me as an extern. And, you know, it was a very life altering opportunity because it gave me exactly what I anticipated. And what that taught me was two things. One, manifest it, believe it, and go after it. And then two, find yourself really uncomfortable and then know you're in the right spot. And so there was a chef, a cook I was working with named Abigail Martinez. And after service one night, Abby and I were sitting in the parking lot, just kind of hanging out, talking and about to go on our way. And I said, hey, did you see this this food and wine magazine? They have this thing called the 10 best new chefs. 
And he's like, oh, really? And I said, yeah. I said, listen, we're going to get on this cover someday. And so I took the cover and I ripped it in half and I gave him the word wine and I kept the word food. And I said, don't take that piece of paper out of your wallet until you hit the cover of the magazine. Well, Abby went on to actually become a chef at wineries in Napa Valley, ironically. And seven years after I had said that, I had won the opportunity to be on the cover as the best new chef in America. And when Dana Cowan gave me my award, I stopped on stage. I took out my wallet and I gave her this piece of paper that was in my wallet. She said, what's this? I said, this word has been in my wallet for seven years and I haven't taken it out until I got on the cover. But now that I know I'm on the cover, my goal is achieved. So you get the piece of paper. And she framed that piece of paper. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Noel, our producer, is feeling the same chills that I am right now. What an amazing story. What an amazing story. They're going to make a movie about that, by the way. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think the thing is too, is like, I journal, listen, I journal a lot. I write a lot about things and I spend time journaling about, you know, my life and my days and things like that, my experiences, because I think you can get to a point where you don't look back to see what got you where you were. And, and you're so, you don't realize that kind of some of that fearlessness and some of that naive bullishness really is what got you to where you are today. And sometimes you need a little bit of that to keep going. Dreams are good. Dreams are good. You're going to laugh. I'm, I'm going to lean to the side. I'm going to lean that way. I saw it. Yeah. 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 It's amazing, Shep, how many incredible people that I have a chance to speak with that have some sort of comment about that guy. Right? Yeah. So you find yourself, fast forward, you find yourself working in international kitchens. You land at Les in London working with Marco Pierre White. By the way, you can see my office at the school is kind of a glass bowl. Mm. You can all see me. And what you can't see over here is white heat. White heat is cool. just kind of facing facing the door. Yeah. Just our conversation, right? With people. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a quick story, but you go first. Tell us about what it was like to work with Marco. Well, so, you know, the chef I was working for in Switzerland had said, listen, you should go work for this chef in London who's been getting a lot of press lately. And he just got three stars. His name's Gordon Ramsay. And I said, okay. And so I, you know, I called the kitchen at Gordon Ramsay on Royal Hospital Road and asked for Gordon and said who I was, where I was working and asked if I'd come to a stage. He said, of course. And so I flew to London and did a couple of days stage with him. And we agreed on terms that I could work there. But frankly, I didn't have a visa. I didn't have a working visa in England. And he says, I need you to go back home in order to attain a visa because I just got three-star Michelin. There's going to be scrutiny after me. You know, I can't do anything that's not on the up and up. And I said, look, I respect that. But my wife at the time was my girlfriend who we had met there. And I said, I don't want to go back home yet. Who else can I work for that will allow me to kind of work under the table? And he says, well, why don't you go work for my mentor, Marco? And so I started at his three-star Michelin restaurant in Piccadilly Circus. And that, that was only for like a very short time because he was closing that restaurant because he had retired. So he was starting to shut everything down and then sort of consolidate his businesses. And so I then moved to Les Gargot. And, you know, he wasn't around a lot because he was on this retirement sort of circuit, so to speak. But you would he would show up, he would come, he would taste things, he would ask who's who. He was quiet, he was reserved. The one thing that I remember about Marco that I think I'll probably never get out of my mind is that when you would make a menu with him, he would bury his head into his hands. And as you're talking about food, you would either think he was sleeping or not paying attention. 
but he was sort of like dreaming through, I, I can only suspect he was like dreaming through what the dish would feel like, be like, taste like, how do you create it? How do you execute it at such a high level? What does the pickup look like? What does the prep look like? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you'd get through the dish and he would describe to you how it should make you feel as a guest and as a cook. And it was just kind of one of those things that, listen, I was 21 years old and it was just kind of a wild, I know for sure at that time, there was no way I could certainly appreciate those small little moments that I had with him, but it was pretty remarkable to see. The, the thing that comes to my mind when I hear you talking about how he sort of reflected on what you guys were talking about, I live here in Colorado. I, you know, we ski here, certainly not world-class, but we ski. But one of the things that's fascinating to me when you see world-class skiers who put their headphones on and they close their eyes and they do exactly that. They know every turn, every bump, where the wind's coming from, where the flags are. Yeah, that's what a great memory. What a beautiful story. You know, just real briefly, my wife and I were in Dublin probably 10 years ago and it was for her birthday and walking down the street. And I literally was talking to her middle of the day about Marco Pierre White. I was talking about white heat. I was talking about, you know, the, you know, the Gordon Ramsay back and forths and all this other stuff. And then I stop in my tracks and I look across the street and there's Marco Pierre White Steakhouse. Uh -huh. Relatively new. Yeah. We went in and we made a reservation for the next night. And we went in. So that's the menu. The menu was oh cool. I was just like Marco Pierre. He wasn't there, but everyone that was there was internationals, was yeah. someplace in the world. And the food was exquisite. The linen was tight. The yeah. was extraordinary. It was that's my that's as close as I've ever gotten to Marco Pierre White. But yeah. Yeah, I mean he you know, his standard of excellence. I mean, I, I joke about it in a way, but I'm also kind of half serious. It's like, you know, if you think Gordon's tough, you know, work for Marco. And it's that's not like a, oh, Gordon's not tough enough. It's just like, that's where he comes from. You know, like the upstairs restaurant at Les Gargot, nothing was cooked beforehand. Nothing was prepped. Like the Rouget was not butchered before service and then set in a 200 pan with a cloth underneath it. And so you'd pull it out when the order would get in. No. The order of Rouget came in, you pulled the Rouget out, you scaled the fish, you cut it, you pinboned it, you trimmed it, you showed the chef on a metal tray that it was perfect. Then you put it back on your station and you tempered it and you got it ready to go. And that was every single day. And it wasn't like, oh, what prep do you have left over for tomorrow? It was open the trash can, throw everything away and get ready to start fresh tomorrow. And it wasn't, that wasn't odd. That wasn't out of the ordinary. That was exactly how he wanted it to be. And that was his way. And it was respected. More chills, Noel. More chills. <laughs> no editing required for this episode, Chef. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a, a little bit more about the accolades. I, I mean, this is so much fun. 2007, as you mentioned, you're named you know, Food and Wine's Best New Chef. In 2008, you win a James Beard Foundation Award for Rising Chef of the Year. I, I think right around that time, you compete for Goudor, which again is a whole nother episode. Iron Chef. How do these, this is a tough question, and I don't mean it to be a cliche, but how do you manage and, and how do these experiences change your life? Just like the example you used of starting from scratch, not cooking anything until the dish is ordered, 
you know, I'm sure that's part of your repertoire for certain things. It stays yeah. with you most of your life, just like the yeah. notes in your wallet stays with you and, you know, beautiful story. The coup d'or alone to zero in on that. Let, let's just, how did that change your life? Still does. You know, it's so funny because so the year that I won Food and Wine Magazine Best of Chef, as you mentioned, was 2007. So basically that calendar year from basically 2007 into 2008, four, four incredibly th- huge things happened to me. Food and Wine Magazine Best of Chef, Rising Star Chef in America for James Beard. I represented Team USA for Boku Store. And then I was on Next Iron Chef for Food Network. Oh, and by the way, then I became the chef de cuisine of Cafe Belud in New York City. And so that's a lot of how it changed. But I go back to this. I mean, you'll sort of catch a thread of this throughout my discussion here. But when I was 24 years old, before I became, or 25, I was probably 24, 25, I had just become the chef at this restaurant in San Diego called El Biscocho, which was located in the Ranch of Bernardo Inn. It's not there. The, the hotel's there. The restaurant's not there. And every year I would write Christmas cards to every famous chef in America. I'd never met any of them. Okay. But I didn't care. I just thought like, if I could write them a card, maybe I'd put into the universe that one day I would meet these people or one day I could cook with them or one day I would work with them. Or I don't know. Out of all of the chefs I ever wrote cards to, ironically, Charlie Trotter became a pen pal of mine after that. I wrote Charlie a Christmas card. And Charlie sent me every single book he'd ever written and signed every one of them as a Christmas gift. And until Charlie passed away, every time I was in an article, he would rip it out like a father and he would staple it to a piece of paper that was on Charlie Trotter letterhead. And his assistant had written a very sweet, you know, note like congratulations, chef, blah, blah, blah. But then Charlie would always write in the bottom right hand corner with his, with his handwriting, which was terrible. Congratulations, chef. Keep pushing Charlie Trotter. I saved all of those letters. And then ironically, Danielle became my future boss and Thomas became a partner in all of these things. And so I guess in many ways, the reason Boku's door changed my life is because I was open to letting something like that change my life. I really wanted to see what that part of my world looked like. I was never a competitive cook. Like I never sought out being going after ACF or sought out doing those type of culinary competitions. I just sort of fell into cooking competitions. The first one was the National Trophy of Cuisine and Pastries, which is sponsored by the Academy Culinaire de France. And that got me into cooking. And Pierre Gagnier said to me after competing in Paris, you should do the Bocuse d'Or. And that's what got me into Bocuse d'Or. Jean-Jacques Dietrich got me into it, all of these chefs. And, you know, honestly, what I learned about Bocuse d'Or and what I continue to learn about it is that it is a very huge international family of chefs and people who strive to find that little extra something that they know exists inside of them that might not always be able to be discovered inside of a restaurant. And for that, it's incredibly addicting because you're in order to be great, you have to surround yourself by greatness. And the family of Bocuse d'Or is simply the greatest family I've ever been around. And it stems from Mr. Bocuse. You know, he created it for that reason. And it's just, it's just one of those things like, I could talk for hours on how that competition has changed and shaped my life, but in the core of it, what it's really done is it's helped me reflect and take a true like gauge of where I am in my career and how I can now have an opportunity to give back to a younger generation of culinarians who are 20 years old like I was 20 years ago, you know? 
Yeah, I just love it. A, a couple of thoughts, kind of going back to something you mentioned earlier about, you know, keeping a journal or at least trying to keep a journal. And then, you know, when you first opened up on cooking and spent all night looking through it, um, again, you can't see it. I mean, there's, I, I'm just surrounded by hundreds of cookbooks, hundreds. Of, and it's not for the recipes. It's not a, you know, at this point in my life, it's about giving them to students and giving them to other people, whether Thomas Keller, Eric Repair, Massimo, Escoffier, Pierre Gagnier, to open up those pages and to kind of think about what they thought about when yeah. they were together. You mentioned Charlie Trotter, again, crazy story, serendipitous in a strange sort of way. Years ago, when I had a restaurant on the western slope of Colorado, small mountain town, I would get magazine. There was no Google. There was So you'd go get food and wine. You'd mm -hmm. go gourmet. You'd go get what whatever you could, bon appetit. And Charlie Trotter was featured a few times. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe the kitchen. Everything was stainless steel. They didn't refrigerator. But, this is insane. And I was born in Chicago and that that neighborhood was not a good neighborhood until Charlie turned it into a good neighborhood. Just like you, Chef, I didn't write him letters, but I wrote a letter to the restaurant because I like to put framed menus from restaurants and clock on the wall. And when my parents went to Vegas, they bring it back or LA. So I sent him a, a note and he probably, I probably got it from his assistant, but the same thing. He sent two menus. This was in the 80s. So he sent two menus. And he's one was the, the, I'd never seen anything like it before. It was a fully vegetable menu, 100%, like eight courses, right? And he said, like you said, he wrote, keep on cooking on the bottom. It's, you can't see it, but that menu is framed right over here on the, in, in the corner. But the other one, the vegetarian one, and I know you know who Farmer Lee Jones is. He spoke at our graduation a couple of years ago. I dug up that old menu and I framed it, presented it to him on stage. It, and the reason I share all that, because one, it makes me want to cry, but also this community that you talk about, it's just a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, I've never experienced anything like it. I think it's, I think that it's one of the reasons why our world has been kind of exploited in such a huge way throughout the media. I think a lot of companies that do what they do look at our culture and say, how do you authentically get culture that way? And for us, it's because we're in the trenches every day with everybody. You know, I mean, to sort of go back to the beginning of this discussion and take into a sports analogy, we get a lot of athletes who eat in our restaurants and we get a lot of coaches who eat in our restaurants. And majority of them say the same thing every day, which is every time they come to eat, they say, it's like game day every day for you guys. I mean, your preparation is your work. And it's so, so true. And I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of shared mutual respect when professions see that happen here. When other professionals come in and they see that, they say, wow, it's really remarkable. Yeah, I know. It was so true. So true. What did you learn from Daniel Ballou? Oh man. I mean, it, working for him was my PhD in this business. It's another crazy story. So when I'm living in San Diego, I read his book, Letters to a Young Chef. And I wrote Danielle a letter requesting to do a stage for one week. And of course they accepted. And so I went there. He wasn't there on the first night or two. I just remember the night that the King of Spain was in for dinner, Danielle was there. And so that seemed odd to me that the King of Spain would show up, but I learned later on in life, that was a pretty normal thing that these people would show up at his restaurant. You know, and the thing with Danielle and a lot of people 
say this and it's very true. It's like, if you say to Danielle, Hey, can we just sit down for 10 minutes? I just want to have a quick talk about something. He'll give you an hour. Cause I've been in both the meeting that lasts an hour. And I've also been the meeting after the 10 minutes that's made me wait an hour. So I know it's true, but he, he does that because there's this general thread that I see in chefs that are highly successful, like a Danielle or a Thomas or otherwise, they're really driven by curiosity. And so when they keep the length of that conversation going, they're doing it because there's something that either they have learned and they want to learn more from, or they know that they're about to learn something off of, out of you that they maybe don't know. And so they sort of like just kind of keep pecking at it over and over again. So I write Danielle's letter and I go and I do a stage with him. And basically a very long story short, that letter that I wrote to him, when I left to move back to Minneapolis to open my own restaurant, he gave that letter back to me. And in the top right-hand corner of that letter, it said to Cynthia, his HR director, please save this letter. This chef could be good future chef for us. And then I was chef for nine years, eight years. And then ironically, that book that I had read, Letters to a Young Chef, when he rewrote the second edition 10 years later, I ended up writing a chapter in that book for him called About Discipline. Crazy. What a great story. We've got to do three episodes. Yeah. It's like you can break them all up. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. I love it. I love, let's, if we can, let's get back to you a little bit more and fast forward. You launched Spoon and Stable, described as a place for families to celebrate milestones, a place to catch up with old friends, make new ones, all while being surrounded by warm hospitality. There's that word again, and delicious food. Many say it was an immediate success, location, every, everything, food. What attributed, what helped attribute to to that? And how was, if you could, Chef, how was that different than running Daniel's Place? Yeah, I will say the only difference of running Cafe Blue to Spoon and Stable was the location was different. I ran Cafe Blue like I owned it. And so I didn't open Spoon and Stable and I didn't know anything different. And I often tell young chefs and young cooks this that are thinking about it. It's like, if you don't run it like it's yours and if you don't run it like you own it, there's no light switch that you can flip on and all of a sudden know this stuff. And I had this huge safety net with Danielle. We give the safety net to our team that if you fail, we'll catch you. We expect you to fail because you're going to learn a lot from that. And you're just, what you're doing is you're spending our money to do so. And that's okay. So Spoon was, Spoon out of the gates, we were just turned nine years old. As you mentioned, we were really fortunate to be both busy and successful right out of the gates and have continued to be very busy and successful for the last nine years. I think a lot of it is a combination of timing was right. I think a lot of it was I had studied this market for a while to sort of see what it is that I thought Minneapolis not needed, but perhaps maybe didn't know that they wanted is a better way to describe it. And so I looked at the landscape of the food and the dining culture here, and I was inspired by what was created. And I looked at what had been here before, and I thought maybe it's an opportunity to create something that's a little bit different than what they've seen. And what's interesting now to me is that I've now seen more restaurants open up with a similar, we all kind of have a little bit similar of an identity as Spoon or a similar identity to a restaurant that I was inspired by. My point is, is that everything has basically been created. So be authentic in what you create. Don't look at somebody else and say, I want that. Look at the mirror and say, what do you want? And then get that. Because the guest knows, like at the end of the day, when you walk into a restaurant and there's not an authenticity to it, or there's not this sort of warm, genuine sense of hospitality and we care, 
it sucks to go out to eat in those restaurants. A friend of mine has a restaurant here in town called Hope Breakfast Bar. And I actually, I was there the other day for breakfast and I was so, I went by myself and I had breakfast and I was so touched by the experience of how warm his team was at eight o'clock in the morning and how genuinely hospitable they were to us. I had to write him an email and just say, listen, food was great, but I walked away feeling like I had just been given a hug at breakfast. And I just want to say bravo, because that is not easy to do. And it was really, it's really important to, I think, applaud each other when we see that. 100%, 100%. Then of course, you went on to launch several more restaurants as part of your hospitality group. Was it always a dream? I mean, for many, the milestones that you've achieved are a yeah. career for many, right? Was it always a, a milestone or a dream or a goal for you to launch a hospitality group? And how did that come to fruition? I'm always fascinated by, like, do you wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to bring this all together in a really unique way? I think it ends up sort of happening either on its own or it doesn't. It kind of got to a point for me where I was looking around and seeing this team of incredibly talented individuals who I knew we could build more restaurants with. Keep in mind, when you have that discussion with yourself, you have to also understand and realize, which I did at the time too, they're still going to end up leaving at some point. <laughs> like not everybody's going to stay. Yeah. yeah. And that's like, that's okay. That shouldn't pull you back from wanting to create growth. If in fact, that's exciting to you. I just, I really love the idea of creating. I love the idea of putting people in positions that they've dreamed to be there because people did that for me. I love the idea of really training, grooming, and getting people ready to go off of a launching pad. So when they are ready to go, they are as well equipped as they ever thought they could be. So then that way they can make the dining area around us or wherever they go stronger and better. Honestly, I think it's our responsibility. And if that's with one restaurant or 20 restaurants you own, the message shouldn't really change. It shouldn't be any different. I look generationally like at Bocuse and what did Bocuse and his generation teach us? You know, it really taught Danielle and his generation that you can come out of the kitchen. The chef can be the chef can be the star and the chef can show something for it. And what did that then teach Danielle? That taught Danielle that the chef can be the star internationally. And so all of a sudden he has restaurants all over the world and somebody like me can go and work in all those restaurants all over the world. I can make a pâté en croûte on 44th Street in Manhattan or in Singapore. It doesn't make a difference. It's the same pâté en croûte, but culturally I'm a different I'm in a different part of the world. So now what is our generation going to do in order to make it better for the next generation? And frankly, COVID slapped us in the face with that and said you got to fix a lot of the stuff that doesn't work. And this is your opportunity to do so. And so that's why I do believe it is our responsibility to do that. You sort of answered this, but I'm going to ask it in another way. Is there, obviously the common denominator is hospitality and many of the things you've already mentioned, Chef, but is there a common thread between all the restaurants, Demi Mara, Spoon and Stable, what you're doing with Spoon Thief and Catering and, and the KZ provisions as well? Is there something that every one of those concepts must have. I mean, there's always an underlying base of foundational French cooking. Whether Mars then Mediterranean or Spoon is a little bit more American, Demi's probably the most French out of all of them. The bakeries, of course, are very French because that's the intention of that. I would say the base is foundationally French. And what I mean by that more than anything else is that we are there to create an educational purpose for the team working for our restaurants. 
We want them to walk away with foundations of this is how I know how to now cook this food. I'm going to, I'm not going to walk away with bad habits because there's not shortcuts that I'm able to take because once I take them, I'm caught. <laughs> and mm-hmm. once I'm caught, I have to pull back and say, okay, it's the wrong way to do it. And so it creates discipline. And our culture has kind of gone away from a little bit of discipline because we're afraid of what that might mean, or we're maybe a little bit gun shy on it. But discipline is not a bad word in that in, in the way that I'm trying to describe it. To me, discipline is a way of creating foundation. And when you create a really strong foundation for yourself and for others, it's harder to get rocked off of the top. And I think that's also important. And then it gives you a great deal of confidence. And as any athlete will tell you, confidence is everything and preparation gets you to that point. And once you are given the opportunity, if you have prepared enough for that opportunity and you've given yourself every opportunity to be successful at that moment, you will be successful at that moment. But if you took a shortcut on the way or many of them, you won't be. Well said, well said. Mentorship has played a very significant role in, in, in your career, both as a mentee and now as a mentor yourself. Again, mostly for our student listeners, Chef, why is this so important to you? And maybe while you're thinking about that, is there a, is there or was there a pivotal moment from one of your mentors that so profoundly influenced your approach to cooking and leadership? And you've used some examples, but is there that one that was it Marco, was it Gordon, was it Daniel, was it Thomas or someone else that just really shaped it? And and now you're doing the same. Someone else will be on a podcast 20 years from now talking about you in that way, right? Yeah. I just wonder if there is that one moment. Definitely. I mean, there's more than there's more than one, but the first one that I remember that that continues to always stick out of my head is actually there was a gentleman named Stan Kaminsky who was my food and beverage director in San Diego. And I had just come out of Marco's kitchen and I was working in San Diego at this restaurant and I had just become the chef. I was young. I was 24, 25 years old. I had no business being the chef of that restaurant because of not only my age, but probably my experience. But at the time, for whatever reason, they believed in me. And there was a cook chopping chives and he did it so poorly. I basically stood on the chives on the cutting board and and it was a Marco move. It was like what I saw in his kitchens, right? And so what I remember is this, Stan saw me do it. He said nothing to me until the next day. And he pulled me down into his office in a way that didn't make me feel like I was going to be spoken to in a way that was negative. So I was pretty disarmed when I walked into his office. And he just calmly explained to me the cause and effect of what that meant and you know how important it was to lead this team and not bark at the team. I had seven cooks that worked for me. That was it. And if I really wanted to make an impact, and as he described it, if you really want to teach them what you've learned, you need to teach them in a way that will allow them to learn. And it just really changed my approach. It helped me identify that I was not acting that way because that's who I was. I was acting that way because of what I had seen. And when I really took a a strong look at who I was as a person, that's not how I teach people. And so that was an impactful moment for teaching. And Danielle taught me all the time about that too. And one one story quickly with him was we had a guest who wanted an eggs on cocotte dish for dinner. It was on the dinner menu. So I said no to making it. And Danielle called me the next day and he said, hey, did so-and-so come in for dinner last night? I said, yeah, they did, chef. He said, what did they want for dinner? I said, I, I think they wanted the eggs on cocotte for breakfast. 
And he says, you didn't have any prep, did you? And I said, no, chef. He says, but you have eggs, right? I said, yes, chef. He said, make the eggs. He didn't yell. He wasn't upset. And I said, I'm sorry. He says, you don't have to be sorry. He says, you just have to understand that when you say no to a guest, you're saying no to me and you're saying no to the guest because I would never have said no. And so they've been eating my food for 20 years with me saying yes. And now you become a representation of me. And so if you say no, they think that's coming from me and that hurts me worse. It taught me this, taught me humility, right? It said, push, push aside your ego. <laughs> you don't have one and you shouldn't have one. You're not good enough to have one. And even when you are good enough, like you're Danielle, he doesn't have one. So, so what's the purpose of no in that respect? And it was humbling and it was a great educational moment. Beautiful story. Wow. Wow. For the sixth year, you've opened your doors at Spoon and Stable to host, and, and I think this is fascinating, the Synergy series. It's My understanding is that it's collaborative dinner to interact and learn from elite chefs or from chef friends, right? Could you explain to us or walk us through what this experience is and where did this evolve from? Yeah. So a lot of it actually stemmed from when we started to work with all of our cooks specifically in the kitchen, I recognized pretty early on that not everybody within our community had the the financial luxury or the life luxury to leave where they were and go work in a restaurant in San Francisco, New York, or otherwise. And I found that to be a little bit disheartening because it's it felt to me like then they were not exposed to what they should be exposed to just because of that small little difference. So I thought, well, I know a lot of these chefs. I'll just bring them here and do a dinner with them. So our first year, we had Michael White, Michael Anthony, April Bloomfield, Danielle Balud. And so the first dinner was supposed to be, they were all supposed to be one night. And Michael White's dinner went up for sale and it sold out in 25 seconds. And I called Michael and I said, God, can you do me a favor? Is there any way you can just give me a second night? It sold out in 25 seconds. People are upset, but it's, if you can't do it, I totally respect that. And he says, no, no problem, chef. I'll give you two nights. So then I called Michael Anthony and April and Danielle. And I said, hey, Michael White gave two nights. I need you to give two nights. And so it always stuck as a two-night experience. And the intention is really to have the guest chef come in and collaborate with our kitchen team and our cooks and our chefs to create this menu with us and with them. And we've had some chefs bring in their front of the house team and their bar managers and their maitre d's and their expos, and then also give our front of the house team an opportunity to learn and experience something that's a little bit different than they would normally see. And then as of late, the last couple of years, we've done every Friday a dialogue conversation where a friend of mine named Allison Arth has a company called Salt and Road. She moderates a dialogue talk with each of these chefs. And that has been so awesome because much like this conversation we're having, this is a live conversation in front of hundreds of individuals. And a lot of them are industry people. We charge $10 to come in and have the talk. We give 100% of the proceeds to a local charity because it's not about making money. It's about giving people an opportunity to listen to these stories. And it's important to know that Thomas Keller wasn't an overnight success and neither was Missy Robbins. And you're going to go through hardships and you're going to go through adversity and go through it and become stronger out of it. And it's always, everybody has a different version of that story, but it's really important to listen to it. Thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that. I was going to ask about sitting as the president of Team USA and the work you do with Baku Or, mm. I'm, I'm curious what significance those roles, that additional work holds for you 
in terms of promoting, at the lack of any other term to use, excellence in 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 hospitality, or is it truly about mentorship and giving back? I mean, it's all of the above. I mean, I think at, at ultimately, Boku's t- mentor started out as Boku Store USA, and Thomas Keller was the president for ten years and of Team USA, and then I was I took that position the last couple of years. He gifted that position to me. And so it's funny because yes, it's a lot of work, but it doesn't feel like work in any respect to me. We've had this organization now for 15 years. We focus, my goal and my main focus is to focus on Team USA and how do we train the best team to go to Lyon and compete. But the organization itself gives away grant scholarships to young cooks all over the country And we've given away millions of dollars to allow young cooks to travel anywhere around the world. In fact, I have a young sous chef coming back from Belgium next week. He just spent eight weeks over in Belgium working at a Michelin-starred restaurant. This is an experience that you and I growing up would never have had in that way because we would have had to have knocked on a back door, hope that they answer, get paid zero, and walk away with a piece of paper that said we did it, right? If we were lucky, that's great. That was perfect for our time. Okay. It worked, but it's not the way that it is now. And so, what we recognize in mentor is that we recognize we have an opportunity and we have really powerful connections to tap into these chefs around the world and say, so and so is this baker from Texas. She's worked at Whole Foods her whole life. She's her dream is to work at Tartine Bakery. Would you accept her to work there for eight weeks? Absolutely. I mean, imagine the ripple effect of lives that are then being changed. So, Yes, it's about promoting excellence. It's about promoting mentorship. It's about giving back. And honestly, a lot of it is about example, showing what is the right way to to lead this next generation of hospitalitarians as we go into this into this world that changes all the time. I read something about being cautious about the term industry when we refer to you know, fascinating. I, could you elaborate a little bit on that perspective? Yeah, I mean, really, a lot of it stems from Thomas because he talks about this a lot, and so it's it's always been glued into my head. But we we do refer to us as an industry, but I, I'm a professional chef, and 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 I look at what we do as as a profession. I still press my chef coats every single Sunday to be ready for my week of work the following week. I make sure that my creases are sharp. I make sure that my my aprons are clean and white, and I take a great deal of pride in making sure that we're putting our best foot forward to be the professionals who we are. And so I think that we deserve the opportunity to be that versus just being an industry. Well said. Well said. I'm totally stealing all of that, by the way. Yeah, good. <laughs> you should. Just a couple of quick questions, if you have the time. Yeah. Uh, one, one is, and, I, and this is really important, this perhaps your v- viewpoint or your take on what we all need to do to create a more perfect sense of belonging in the kitchen, a sense of belonging that fosters this better work environment that you strive for every day. A, a few words on that, Chef? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that finding a place that that has a sense of core values that you believe in as well is also important. Working for a place because the place is the name that it is doesn't make it the right place for you. And I think what's really important to know is that's okay. I remember Thomas telling the story about when he moved over to France, he was working at this restaurant and 
He was filling the fire with coals and his bedroom was like above that and it was smoky and terrible. And he worked there three days and he quit and he walked away. And most people be like, oh my God, you walked out of the restaurant. You're Thomas Keller or Gavin Kaysen or whatever. It's like, the point is, is that if it's not okay for you, that's okay. Find what you believe in is right. Find the core values of what you want to create that give you a great sense of joy because that in itself will help sort of trickle down to everybody else. I mean, I often say like in our restaurants, I often say, people ask me like, well, what do you look for when you interview somebody? And I say, kindness. I really look for kindness because listen, if you walk in and you want to work in our restaurant and you're not kind and you don't really want to make people happy, but everybody else does, you kind of look around and you're like, why am I the odd person here? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't work at this restaurant. And that's great. We don't have to do anything. You just leave. So find the place that makes you spark and gives you a great sense of joy because life's too short to not live with that. Absolutely. So well said. Well, the name of the podcast is The Ultimate Dish Shop. We've come to that point in the day where I ask the toughest question and I'd love to hear from you. What is The Ultimate Dish in your mind? So for me, The Ultimate Dish and setting is really being with my family and having dinner with them and my kids love two things that I make because they ask for it basically every week, which is either a whole roasted chicken, uh, which I'll tend to do a spashcock version of it, or they want a steak. In their, in their mind, they love the bone-in ribeye. So I'll do a prime rip for them, which is just like at age 11 and 14, that's a tall, that's a tall ask. I don't know what I've raised, but you know, so anytime I can cook for them, that's really my ultimate dish. Maybe a roasted chicken, maybe a prime rib. I love things that are both Simple, delicious, but really highlight the essence of the person creating the food and farming and all of that. I love it. And that it's with your family. Beautiful. Yeah. Chef, your humility, your professionalism, your kindness are so appreciated. Thank, thanks for spending some time with us. Wish you all the success, continued success in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Ultimate Dish Podcast brought to you by Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts. Visit escoffier.edu forward slash podcast to find any materials mentioned during the podcast, including notes, links, and other resources. And if you can, please leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to support our show. This helps us reach more aspiring individuals ready to take the next step toward their dream careers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>